Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Sometimes we begin with worship and sometimes we begin with the Word and uh, it's entirely up to the speaker. And I've decided to start tonight with uh, looking into the scriptures that will perhaps help us, uh, particularly with tonight's subject, with our time of response then to the, the Lord. We come tonight to the fifth in our series on conversion. What has God done for us and how are we to respond then to him? Let's pray. What a great privilege, Father, to lift our voice together, one voice from one heart, as we unite around this table and call you Father and come into your presence without fear or regret or hesitation because of all that you've said and done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we do pray tonight as we sit together and as we from time to time glance at each other and read your word and sing songs there would be a real sense of, of the privilege and the joy of being in your family. Because you've said that that's true, and we pray that our own hearts might rise to, to meet that truth with real rejoicing. Lead us then in our thinking and study, we pray. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. The um, emphasis we come to Tonight is that when you become a Christian, you become a, a son or a daughter, a child of God, a member of the family. Last week, you were looking at, at what it is to be a pardoned uh, prisoner, if you like, in the dock, declared not guilty. This is very different. Theologically, this is one step on beyond that. Not just that we are pardoned, declared not guilty. This is not just a question of of being a, a pardoned sinner, or even being a, a servant or a soldier. It is a question tonight of being in the family of God. Our adoption is the theological term. That's a very different thing from justification. No judge, well, nobody would ever want to be a judge. If uh, every person that they ever declared not guilty in their court, they then had to adopt into their family take them home with them after the court hearings. Give them a share in their inheritance. Feed them for the rest of their life. Take them on holiday with them. Nobody would ever want to do it. And yet that is precisely what God has done and what we're looking at tonight. Can you turn to the epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Rome? Paul's epistle to the Romans and the 8th chapter We're going to read just a few verses, and we'll start in, in verse 14. Romans 8, 14. It's actually picking it up in the middle of a sentence, but the, the sense is plain. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you, he says to the Romans, you, you Christians there in Rome, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. 
but you receive the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. And by him, that, that spirit, we cry, Abba, which is the Aramaic word for father. We don't translate it. Abba, father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, not only creation, but we, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first experience of the Holy Spirit, we too groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, that is, the redemption of our bodies. And we leave it there. Adoption in New Testament times was largely a Roman procedure. Very rare among other nations. That's why when Paul writes about adoption in the New Testament, he writes to those provinces that were governed by the Romans, who would have known that practice. So he writes of it to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, and to the church in Rome. And those five references are the only five references in the whole of the New Testament to this topic. Now, a definition. Adoption is a legal action by which a person takes into his family a child not his own, and usually of no relation. <laughs> the Irish method of mechanics here. And usually of no relation with the purpose of treating him or her with all the rights and privileges of a natural son or daughter. Just let me repeat that last bit. Taken into the family so that they may be treated with all the rights and privileges of the natural son. That is breathtaking when you begin to think who we're talking about. Men and women are adopted into the family of God so that they may be treated like Jesus. Have the rights and privileges with the Father in heaven of the Lord Jesus himself. The creator of the ends of the earth has made us into his family if we are believers. You see, the New Testament will talk about us as children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Jesus even said, you are of your father, the devil. And we have been adopted by a holy God. As I say, it's breathtaking. It means that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, has no greater rights in heaven or before the Father by this action of God than God's children in Solstice. Now, we, we will dwell upon this, I guess, more in our worship and our response. But the thing that is specially emphasized in those references when Paul speaks of this is particularly the access that we have to the Father. We may come boldly, freely, confidently, regularly, as often as we want, to the Father. At the time of Christ, 
the sense of gap, of distance between ordinary people and God was actually growing. The Jews had reached a point where in normal speech they wouldn't even refer to God. They wouldn't let the words that spoke of God by name pass their lips. They would never use a name for God in prayer. Jesus came and completely reversed all that. It was astonishing to the Jews. It must have left them absolutely thunderstruck. There are a number of prayers, uh, the prayers of Jesus recorded in Scripture. Do you know that every single one, apart from one, begins by addressing God as Father? My dear Father. And the one in which he does not is when he hung on the cross. When the Father turned his back and withdrew from the Son. And there Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now, God the Father has put the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, into the believer, calls him the Spirit of adoption in the verses that we've read, or the Spirit of sonship, as you have it there in, in the NIV. And as God looks at a true believer, he recognizes that spirit. That one's mine. That one isn't yet. I recognize my spirit in that child. That's how God recognizes those who are his own. He senses his own spirit. The spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption in that person. Now, how can I be sure that I am a child of God? How can I be absolutely quite sure? What is the evidence that I will comfort myself with? Well, in the verses that we read from Romans 8, there are four clear marks. First, in verse 14. Verse 14 says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Guidance. Guidance. God's guidance of the believer is meant to be to them an evidence, a confirming evidence that they are indeed a child of God. Now, this does not mean, I don't think, guidance in, in the trivial things of life, whether you wear brown shoes or black shoes or one of each to come to the, the service in the evening. You know, whether you shop in Tesco's or, or Sainsbury's this week, uh, that sort of stuff. Whether I shall take the Rolls Royce or the BMW to work this morning. None of that sort of stuff. That, that is not what we're talking about. You know, you may, if it's getting towards five o'clock, pray about whether you stay late at the office or whether you go home on time or early or whatever. I don't think that is the guidance that is being specifically mentioned here as an evidence of sonship. Nor even really in, in rather more important things about who you marry or what job you do. None of those things actually are very much to do with eternity. And very much of eternity in Tesco's or, or brown shoes or any of that. Now, I think that what the Holy Spirit is guiding us into, that evidence that we can have in our own hearts, is, is more like this. He, being the Holy Spirit, guides people into holiness. At work. In what standards they're going to apply. In how they're going to treat other people. He guides people into holiness at home. In the way they treat other members of the family. With what understanding and gentleness. Or not. 
He is, after all, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads us, says the Scripture, into love for the Father. In 1 John 2:15, if anyone loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's simply not there. And it is the Holy Spirit that will generate that love for the Father in you and guide you to want to be more in tune with that Father and, and to, to obey that Father. It is the Holy Spirit who will lead us to read and then to understand, since he's the Spirit of Truth, read the Word of God which the Holy Spirit has caused to be written. It's that kind of guidance. Now, are you experiencing those kind of longings? Longings to be more in tune with God. To be more at one as you pray, to understand his will, to live more for him. To grow up to be more like him. Little bits of grit that come in, in family relationships or, or business things. You grieve about them. You want to see them washed away. Any of those longings or feelings, then you are an adopted child of God. That is what these scriptures are talking about. That's the first evidence. And then the second, from verse 15. 15 says that you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Different feelings towards God compared with those who are not yet believers. Not fear, but an instinctive trust of the Father. Now, I would imagine that we are probably tonight going to sing at some stage, I mean... Let me not predict how the Holy Spirit will lead you, but I just have a sense that somewhere along the line, somebody has probably conceded in their heart to choose the uh, song, the first one in our books, Abba Father. I had a very interesting discovery when I, I began to, to study what these phrases actually mean. I don't think it quite carries with it the sense that we often have when, when we sing this. Or at least when I sing it, let me make... You know, no statements about you. Oh, let me make a total personal confession. Uh, I have always envisaged, when we sing Abba Father, let me see the effect of the music. Uh, there we are, the child of God, sort of lying back gently, resting in the arms of the Father. It's a very quiet, peaceful sort of picture. I discovered this past week that is not the meaning of the words. That term, cry Abba Father, those that have received the spirit of sonship cry, Abba Father. That word cry is frequently in the New Testament accompanied by the phrase with a loud voice. And it is a shriek. It is a yell. It is an emergency cry out. It in fact is the shout of a child that has just fallen over. Running pell-mell down the street trips over something, crash, and we've all seen children do it. It's that sort of a cry. When we cry, Abba Father. It's the cry of Peter, same word is used in the original, the cry of Peter as he sinks below the waves, having set off to walk towards Jesus on the stormy lake in Galilee. It's the cry of Bartimaeus as he sits by the street side. And he cries out, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And it says he cried with a loud voice. Exactly the same word. It's even the term Jesus used when he said that uh, if these children should be silenced, why the very stones would cry out with that emergency yell. Now, 
Here's an interesting thing. When you come into a crisis in your life, a difficulty, a problem, you hit a burden, whatever it may be, your basic attitudes to God show up. Always. There are people who, if something happens to them, they maybe slide into a road accident or something happens, they will immediately think, why did God let this happen? What have I done to deserve this? It's unfair. God ought not to treat me like this. And someone else can react to exactly the same experience, be it an accident or a failed exam or a burglary or whatever it is, with, well, God's in charge. He hasn't lost control. It'll all work out for good in the end. He is a good God. He knows what he's doing, even though these things do happen. Do you notice the difference between those two reactions? One is a slavish reaction of fear, of feeling upset, and the other is the reaction of a son who knows that his father can be trusted. That's what Paul is talking about here in Romans. When you come into a crisis in your life, how do you react in your attitudes to God? We have received the spirit of sonship, whereby we, maybe in an emergency, will cry out, Dad, Father, help me. It is an emergency. Maybe you're in pain. But your response will be to turn to him in trust, looking for help, reaching out a hand to be rescued, rather than that critical feeling, that aggressive feeling, why does God let these things happen? This was written in the first century to believers in Rome, many of whom were going to face the most intense persecution. These kind of questions would precisely come up. And is it an evidence of the Holy Spirit working, that you are truly a child of God, that you react to those things with trust in your Heavenly Father? So it's not a small sign. It is, how do you think of God when frightening things happen? It is without fear. Reliance on him. Now, a third one we'll see in verse 16, the next verse. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We have a witness in our spirit that we're his. The Holy Spirit and our spirit are in happy agreement that we do belong to him. Now, I find among Christians this is enormously variable. Some have a very strong, unshakable sense, and there are others among you who I know uh, battle with this. That's all right. Bishop Ryle, in the last century, said, Some of the children of God speed on their course towards heaven under the full sails of assurance. Others are tossed to and fro all their voyage and will scarce believe they have got faith. But deep down, both know, in the end, because the Holy Spirit is witnessing this with their spirit, that they are indeed somehow a child of God. It's another evidence. Are you experiencing those holy, eternal, heavenly longings? When crises come, do you immediately turn to the Father with trust and not with fear? Do you have an inner sense that you are indeed a child of God by God's grace somehow? Then you have been adopted in the family. God has done it. And then there's a fourth thing. This is not to do with our inner conviction so much. This is rather a surprise in verse 17. It is suffering. Look how verse 17 puts it. If we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, 
in order that we may also share in his glory. It's a common experience of every member of the family of God. I don't know what background or, or hurts or pains you may have come from uh, just to be here tonight. What's going on in your life and the struggles and the battles. But it is inevitable, says the word of God, that believers will go through times when it just feels as if their, their back is being whipped with barbed wire. When people's looks and criticisms and misunderstandings, their hardness apart, it shreds you raw. I was reading this last week of Bishop Hugh Latimer, one of the greatest preachers that this country ever saw, was a man who was burned at the stake in Oxford. He was a very, very great man. Educated in Cambridge. Cambridge bred the reformers, Oxford burned them. Uh, he was once uh, told by his landlord, um, when he was staying somewhere, that, um, you know, the way landlords sometimes come out, you know, trying to boost the reputation of their place. He said, but uh, there had never been any trouble in that place. And Latimer appeared at him and then said, well, then God cannot be here. You know, where the Spirit of God is, there is frequently trouble and difficulty. And we have to receive, in this life, the sufferings that come as a confirmation that we are indeed a younger brother, younger sister of the Lord Jesus in the same family. We read in Hebrews 2 that he was not ashamed, Jesus, to call us brethren. He was made in flesh and blood like us. We even read later on in the book in Hebrews chapter 11 that God was not ashamed to be called our God. That is an astonishing thing. When you, when you think of our lives, of our church, of our history, of what we people have done, that God should not be ashamed to be called our God because he has prepared for us a city. He's done such great things for us. Let us take good care then, says 1 John, in chapter 2, that we be not ashamed ourselves of him at his coming. Well, those four that I mentioned are all in the present. They're part of our present experience. What of the future? If you've been adopted in the family of God, well, simply these verses tell us that we are the richest people on earth. We have an inheritance that lasts way beyond death. Those outside the family of God, no matter how much wealth, how many houses, how many yachts, how many companies they may have amassed for themselves, they leave the whole lot behind when they go. They can take nothing with them. We are going to our inheritance. Those that have been put to death recently in China for being believers, those that are being persecuted viciously now in Egypt, in Iran, in Turkey, of whom the world is not worthy, says the scriptures, living in caves, hungry, thirsty, for the sake of the name of Christ, they are going to go to an inheritance that's unimaginable. Verse 17 says we are the heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. This is what the old Puritans used to call a cordial for fainting pilgrims. A lovely phrase. Give you a little bit of something to, to set you going again towards heaven. Something has been already prepared for you, my dear believing friend, which you cannot imagine. The scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 
We get little glimpses in the scripture of reigning with Christ over the entire world. But it won't be the world as we now know it. To reign with Christ over a world where Satan has been bound, where there is sin no more, where the scriptures say there will be no sorrow, no sickness, no tears, no death. What a perfect world to live in. A world of God's creating and we are to be heirs of that and we can even begin to glimpse and imagine that and the scripture says that he has prepared things for us beyond what we could even imagine or understand. To live with him to reign with him, to serve him forever and ever. I mean, here in, in Romans 8, verses uh, 22-23, we read about the adoption, the redemption of our own bodies. That too is part, one day, of our adoption as sons and daughters. Paul Tournier, the noted Swiss psychologist, wrote a book once, and with this I end, called A Place for You. And early on in the book, he tells the story of a young man who had grown up in a religious home. It was an unhappy home. A lot of tension and argument there, and eventually, sad to say, uh, it was a home broken by divorce. And the resulting psychological symptoms in that young man uh, were, were very unfortunate, but plain to see. He had an acute sense of his own failure. He felt deeply guilty that he had not been able to achieve the reconciliation of his own parents. He couldn't uh, settle into anything in life. He couldn't settle into his studies. He couldn't settle into a job. And eventually he came to see Paul Tournier. And they met and talked uh, on a number of occasions. And then he came out with this insight. He said, basically, I'm looking for a place. Somewhere to be. Now that, at a spiritual level, is a universal need. But we can understand it perhaps more easily at, at the physical human level. Someone who comes from a harmonious home will find a sense of acceptance and welcome almost anywhere. Those kind of children make little houses out of chairs and blankets and, and sticks and, and they're making homes for themselves and they feel at home. They can move into a group of people and basically feel unthreatened at home there. Someone from a home where they didn't feel as if they fitted in where there was fracture and, and breakup, we'll always be looking elsewhere for somewhere to belong and are most likely to settle into a kind of wandering existence and feel themselves rootless. They carry with them that difficulty in feeling rooted and accepted. It's part of the, the alienation. It's not that person's fault, but the alienation in society that comes in a fallen world. God's answer, ultimately, to all this is this doctrine that we're just glancing at tonight, the doctrine of our adoption, where he says, whoever you may be, and from whatever background and however much brokenness, come and find your place in my family. Find your place with my people, there to be received as you are and welcomed, to find security and an inheritance, a great inheritance in God himself. They are not just declared not guilty. When the court scene is over, the judge gets up off his bench 
and comes down and says, now, will you come home with me? If you go back to where you came from, you'll get back into the same stuff again. And God puts his spirit of adoption into those who believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. What an inheritance to look forward to. That too is part of conversion. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.